was a real sense by which um, what has happened this past week in the turning of Roe is that there is a whole generation of children who are crying out. Just as the blood of Abel speaks, so the millions of lives that have been lost to abortion speak. They speak. They speak. Their words condemn this nation. Do we understand? Their blood condemns this nation. That loss of life condemns this nation, but there is a blood that speaks a better word. God hears the cries. He hears their blood, but there is a blood that speaks a better word. And we need that blood upon our nation. We need that blood to bring mercy to the condemnation that is ours as a nation. We need Christ. We need his mercy to come to bear. So, Lord, I pray for our nation. Lord, we, we, we come to you with gratefulness that you've had mercy upon us this past week. Fifty years, almost 50 years of this terror that has reigned within our nation. And we're beginning in some sense to see a wall come down. And yet, Lord, I would just pray into that saying, Lord, sustain it, sustain it, sustain it. Bring your power to tear it all down. Bring this nation to our knees. Bring this nation to repentance, Lord. And may we lean, throw ourselves, cast ourselves upon the blood of Jesus. Oh, what mercy is found there. Oh, what cleansing is found there. What condemnation is absolved in the blood of Christ. Jesus, would you come again upon this nation in might and in power, bringing about revival, bringing about repentance, bringing a people to their knees before you, crying out to you, saying, God, we need you. We need you. We've seen who you were in the past. We've strayed from that. But how we need you to come again and do only what you can do within this nation. So, God, would you do this work, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to be brief with this, but I do want to share uh, on July, and I shared this with some of you guys this, earlier this morning, but on July 8th of 2020, I had a dream of one of those old uh, flip alarm clocks, and the number was 624, and the numbers kept turning and it kept saying 624 624 and when I woke up in the morning it was 624 in the morning and so I took a screenshot and I and I wrote it down in my journal I put it in my calendar and I had no idea you know what if any significance there was and um, so I just began to pray about it and I also went through the Bible and every time there was a 624 passage, I wrote them all down and began just reading through them and praying, like, what is this, Lord? What does this have to do with? And so um, back at the end of March was 624 days from when I had that dream. And then uh, this past Friday was the first 624 since 624 days. And, um, you know, I came, I woke up in the morning and was like, all right, Lord, to, yeah, I have the reminder in my calendar, like, today's the day. I don't know what in the world this is about, if there's anything even, like, I'm just, 
asking the Lord. And um, shortly after I was thinking of that and praying about that, then my sister texted me that they had overturned Roe v. Wade. And um, I was kind of immediately convicted of my own weakness and travailing in prayer for the unborn. Um, and so I did spend some time in repentance. Like my, I felt like the disciples in the garden where Jesus is about to be crucified and they're asleep. Um, and now I, I don't share this to say like I knew this was going to happen and the Lord spoke this to me because I didn't know what that dream was about. Um, but the fact is that there are many others who have had prophetic words and dreams and visions about this happening. There are many others who have labored in prayer for decades for this to happen and for what will continue to happen. And um, the, the thing that I took away even this morning, like asking the Lord, okay, what can we glean from this as a church? Is that um, the Lord has placed his church here as a watchman and as a lampstand. And so this is a time for the church to be the watchman. And if you remember Ezekiel 33, the Lord calls the prophet Ezekiel to declare the sins of the people and to call them to repentance. And he says to the prophet, where you fail to do so, you are responsible for their blood. And so for, for the church as the lampstand in Christ in this world right now, it is time for us to be raised up as the lampstand, as the watchman, as the witnesses, as we go into that evil, hate-filled hate world that does not want to see this happen. And we must be in prayer and in fasting and in proclaiming the gospel in boldness and, most importantly, doing so with love for those who will hate us and who will persecute us. And so I know this is heavy, but, guys, today is a heavy day. Um, and I, I think the significance of 624 is that this is a monumental shift in the history of our nation. This is huge. And so we need to come together and continue seeking the Lord when it comes to uh, the lives of the unborn, because there will be much work that is needed to protect those lives even still. And so I'm going to leave it with that and um, let Dan take over. Even if that's a little awkward for you, that we would reference dreams. Job 33 says, In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then God opens the ears of men, and he terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. One of the ways that God speaks to us, even we could go to Acts 2, Joel 2, one of the ways that God speaks to us is through dreams. Um, and remember, dreams and visions, just as we went through the book of Revelation, they could be awkward, they could be weird, there's a lot of mystery to them. And yet, as we give attention to them and bring them before the Lord and pray over them, God oftentimes brings meaning to it and says, yep, I, I was working way before you ever realized uh, what is to come. And so just be sensitive to these things. You say, well, this is a little strange and a little odd. It's in the Bible. We've got to get good with it. We've got to get good with all that God provides us. We need discernment. We need to hold things in open hands. Uh, and yet we need to learn some of these things. We've got so much more to explore in terms of what God has for us. We are just like 
touching the surface when it comes to it. Oh, there are depths, depths of glory to explore um, in who God is. Uh, so this morning, to get to um, our focus this morning, um, you're coming in on a heavy morning. And... <laughs> uh, we have scheduled today a bit of a family meeting, uh, and there's three particular items that we want to focus on this morning. The first of those three matters I want to take up just by way of uh, a sermon and scripture reflection, and then we're going to shut down the live stream, uh, and we're going to ask the teens to head on out, and um, then we'll deal with the final uh, matters, the family business that we have this morning. Uh, but to the point of the first item, um, James and I have heard that, um, from a few at least, that there are concerns uh, with our church and the direction of the church. And so we just wanted to um, kind of be, attempt this morning to answer that question, where are we going as a church? Uh, most of those concerns, to be straight, and I want to be specific um, for the sake of clarity. I don't want to just be kind of beating around the bush, saying things that leave you wondering, what exactly is he saying? Um, the concerns that have bro uh, been brought our way deal with stuff like this. Uh, new songs that we're singing, new musicians on the team, new expressions of worship, um, and perhaps, if I can call it this, a heavier style of preaching. Um, I want to calm you. If you carry these concerns in any way, where are we going and when, what's going on? I, wa I want to just calm any unsettled nerves by first saying that we have not changed any theology. Our convictions are not changing whatsoever. However, we are continuing to highlight the absolute necessity for every Christian to wholeheartedly pursue an experiential relationship with God. I hope that's why you're here. <laughs> uh, the presence of God among us and in us as his people is primary. Um, this is an emphasis that we started Actually, way back in our core group meetings, I pulled out some of the notes, and I'm like, wasn't this part of what we began with? Talking about the manifest presence of God connected with the spiritual gift, gifts, etc. We then gave further attention to these things in 2016, because the church had grown considerably, and we needed to just kind of buckle down on that main aim. And so we had a number of sermon series on the gifts of the Spirit being the fruit of that realized relationship with God. We had a series on reclaiming revival, which was a series aimed at heightening our expectations for the manifest presence of God. We had a sermon series, Beautiful Surrender, emphasizing how we pursue this conscious communion, this experiential relationship with God. We had another series, Empowering Presence, which followed Martin Lloyd-Jones' teaching on drawing near to God and cultivating a hunger for the Lord. Uh, we had a few series on spiritual warfare, as well as Word and Spirit. Um, they were all series that dealt with discernment for the battle that is involved in pursuing a relationship with the Lord. Our emphasis when it comes to that has been the same and has been consistent, and now we've even changed our name, Mercygate. 
uh, to uh, focus on that particular aim as well. From Ezekiel 47, right? The mercy gate is the gate that the river of God's presence flows through and gives life wherever it runs. And so the emphasis for us is we want to see ourselves as a people in whom, among whom, and through whom God is pleased to dwell. Even most recently then, um, we've had series from Romans 8, a battle between the flesh and the spirit. But as we talked and saw in Romans 8, this keeping in step with the spirit is an experiential reality. He bears witness that we are children of God, causing us even to cry out, Abba, Father, there's a real experiential relationship for the Christian to know. Or 1 Kings chapter 18, Mount Carmel, we've stayed there for a while. And we recognize that the church actually carries the mantle of Elijah, right? And, and, and what exactly, well, does, does that mean? Well, it means that we are, as James mentioned earlier, we are to be a lampstand filled with the oil of the Spirit, and with the oil of the Spirit, we are to shine in a dark culture. Our emphasis more recently than even, uh, we've talked about busyness, all again with the aim to slow down, give space to the spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines which are an absolute necessity of cultivating an experiential relationship with God. If you don't have the disciplines, you will not know God by way of experience. You will know him by way of theory. You'll have a bunch of theological propositions, but your heart will be largely unmoved. You will not be able to read the Song of Solomon. You'll read that and say, what kind of weirdness is this intimacy? While it has a lot of practical application, for instance, to marriage, oh, is it about the close-knit, personal relationship, intimate relationship that is to be felt between Christ and his people. Folks, we need those spiritual, we need to cut out the stuff, the clutter, the crap in our lives and give focused attention to the Lord. So it is to say, again, our aim, oh, it's our burden for uh, not only for us personally as your pastors, but yes, for us more broadly as a church to know, to know, to know this experiential relationship with God. Uh, I think we've been consistent on that and we aim to keep it such. Now, what does that have to do with new songs, new musicians, new expressions of worship, and heavier preaching? Well, in worship, we want our primary focus to be on what God wants. So we have felt led to add songs that speak more directly and even vulnerably to God. As one song that we've added says simply, um, Jesus, I love you. And it repeats it. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
these are songs that we want to add because they speak directly to him and vulnerably so. If you can't sing that, there's problems. If you can't bear your heart before the Lord in that way, there's problems with your heart. We want to sing songs that he wants. He wants the vulnerability of your heart. And so we've added songs in some ways to focus more intently on speaking directly to God and in a vulnerable way. But we've also added songs that perhaps are just new. Why? Because we want to be careful not to get stuck in a religious rut. Familiarity is easy to hide behind. We come in, we kind of know what to expect. We sing the songs that we are very um, used to, and we go out of here not challenged necessarily because it's so familiar. And it's not to say that the old songs aren't bad. I, don't, I want those old songs. I want to hold on to those hymns. I love hymns. Frankly, I'll be straight with you. Some of the songs, the new songs that we sing, I don't like them all. I don't prefer them. I know I need to sing them. I need to sing them. I need to get my heart adjusted to that place of vulnerability. And it's stylistically in tempo. Oh, that's a little different. That's okay. I need to sing those songs. So maybe, maybe you say, but these, these things are, are different. Well, it's okay. Different is not a problem. Different is okay. So we've added some new songs. We've added some new musicians. Um, on one hand, we've done that. Why? Well, because we need some. <laughs> on the other hand, uh, for those who have joined us, we love, James and I love, that they are placing a clear value upon their relationship with the Lord. And every time we gather together, we sense that they're making a clear effort to pursue him. I want you singing if that's the case. <laughs> I want you playing if that's the case. But you may say, well, it sounds different. Yeah, musically, there's always room to grow. And um, that's what musicians will be given to, growing. Right? So there's room to grow. But coming into worship isn't about what we want in the first place. My encouragement to you is to honor the different sounds. We live in an urban center, right? There is going to be a, if we're doing mission well, there is going to be a diversity. And that diversity, we should hope in some way, begins to see expression even in the songs we sing, in the folks who are leading in music. It should be there. Can you honor these different sounds? Can you see hearts that are hungering for the Lord despite whether it hits on your preferred style or not? What about these new expressions of worship? Um, shouting, singing spontaneously, praying spontaneously, hearing people speak in tongues, having times of silence, having times of ministry. These, if we call them new expressions, and maybe that I'm, I'm pushing it too far, um, 
But none of those expressions are new. These are all biblical expressions of worship. They aren't new. They may be new to you, but they aren't new. And so we want to give ourselves to everything that Scripture commands of us because that is what God wants of us. Once again, we are not here for our preferences. This is, this, I have to be careful of getting on rabbit trails, but this is the downfall of the Western church. Everything, what do you like, church? What do you like, church? What do you like, church? And before you know it, church is about us rather than about God, his anointing, his presence among us. We have to be oh so careful. It is to bring a sacrifice, costly sacrifice to him. <laughs> it's all about him. And so you, you may feel in your heart, you saying, well, I don't prefer this. I don't prefer to shout. That's not me. I don't prefer to raise my hands. That's not me. I, I, I'm not even sure how to sing spontaneously. That's not me. Or pray spontaneously. I just don't know how that's to go. I think the Lord would honor your risk, your vulnerability, your humility. Can you be like David dancing before the Lord? There are so many times in our gatherings where I sense the Lord. I've mentioned it to James, where the Lord is saying, what I want of you today is for you to lay prostrate before me in worship. I'm the pastor. There will be eyes. I'm going to have people concerned about another new expression of worship. <laughs> it's not new. For centuries, God has wanted that from his people. That kind of sacrifice of praise. It's not what I would prefer. But I need to get good with bringing the gifts of worship that God wants, not that which I prefer. Folks, let's, let's be honest. The fact of, well, geez, like most of the Christian life, the spiritual disciplines, for instance, evangelism, it's a... It, it, they don't begin as something that you prefer. You get it? The full basics of Christianity, it's not like, oh yeah, I feel like doing that in the moment. No, why? Because your flesh is active. My flesh is active. It doesn't begin with something that we prefer. So pastorally, we are trying to lead you into these things, not because I prefer them, or James prefers them, or you prefer them, but because God prefers them. He commands them. He wants them. So can I speak straight and just blunt? If you have issues with these expressions of worship, it's not a problem with the direction of our church as it perhaps is the problem of your own heart. I know it's not going to be, it's, you're not used to it. So that fits in there. But oh, how that religious spirit forms us and cultivates us in, in, in ways that we don't even recognize. It's oftentimes a problem with our heart. Now finally, uh, that brings us to this kind of the final aspect of just some of the tidbits that we've heard concerns about. Um, the final one is heavy preaching. I am sure 
there are times, perhaps even in these moments right now, uh, that I preach from frustration. Um, I don't think that's always wrong, uh, but it certainly isn't always best. And I own that. I want to be sensitive uh, to that. But I would say that the heavy preaching perhaps is resulting from some of the family business that we'll address in a few moments. Because what we are doing here, and we have to see it this way, is life and death. It's life and death. I think that's the hard thing, is we see the death. And we are so zealous to ensure that your life is given to life. And when we see the complacency and we see the, kind of the ease to just kind of excuse yourself from giving yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord, we are just like, ah, <laughs> filled with various levels of frustration. What we are doing here is life and death. Now, simultaneously, at the same time, James and I have an intensified faith to see the presence and power of God made manifest in our midst. He wants to dwell here. He wants to do more. He wants, you, he wants to take you deeper into glories than you could, as Scripture says, ever even ask and imagine. There is more. But then finally, folks, I don't think, and I'm just trying to be straight with you, I do not think we are prepared for the spiritual warfare that is presently at our door, nor for the warfare that is soon to come. So much, we could say, is at stake. Yet, this is, this is the way I see things, okay? The Western church is largely asleep. We're, we're getting rocked to sleep in our ease, in our comforts. Just getting rocked to sleep in our ease and in our comforts. Like, this is just a picture that I had as I'm going through this. It's like we're getting rocked to sleep in the bosom of Babylon. Remember Babylon from Revelation? Mm -hmm. Those, that political stuff, that luxurious stuff, that consumeristic stuff, that even religious stuff. We're just getting rocked to sleep in the bosom of Babylon. And as such, this is just my burden. We are leading the next generation into a battle that they will not be fit for. You can't see what happened this past week and just say, ah, we're all right. Roe is overturned, and immediately you turn on the, the live news, and what is the language coming from it? This is an evil. Our culture is saying that overturning Roe is an evil. Sounds like scripture, right? Where societies begin to call what is good evil. We're there. Persecution will come in the name of justice. You will be wrong because you will seek to defend the unborn. You will be unjust. 
the battle will continue to rage. I mean, just even this past month, you know, Pride Month. There are so many things. And now I can't even turn Disney Plus on for my two little toddlers and not get them indoctrinated with the culture. They're four. Four years old. We have a war on our hands. And look, it's not us against them. Take Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not me against my neighbor, for instance. Even as Roe is overturned, there's text messages going on. How awful, how awful that this has happened. It's not me against my neighbor. There is spiritual warfare at work in all of this. And I don't think we are fit to stand. For the warfare that's at our door or for the warfare that is soon to come. So heavy preaching, you better believe it. (laughs) There better be fire in this pulpit, whatever this thing is, right? There better be fire. There better be urgency. We are going to be pushing. We're going to offend you. We're going to offend you. I have to offend my kids all the time in parenting. I have to offend to just kind of cater to the wants and desires. It is not the way to pastor. It's not the way to parent. We have to offend. We have to bring fire, so to speak, back into the pulpit. Folks, we're not prepared. I just don't think we're prepared for the spiritual warfare at hand. And it's to that, now i got to move. It's to that that I'd like to just expound a little bit from Matthew 25. Turn there real quick. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Let me read through this briefly. I'm just going to make a few comments for sake of time. Matthew 25, Jesus is preaching his Olivet Discourse. And in the middle of this, he gives four different parables, one of which comes from Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. He states, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and Buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. I have not had relationship with you. Watch, therefore, 
for you know neither the day nor the hour. Our world is not getting better. You say, well, it wasn't Roe overturned. Yeah, yeah, good things are happening. But just because good things are happening doesn't mean that our world's getting better. It is going to be polarized in greater measure. And frankly, this is what Jesus, even earlier in this sermon, talks about. From Matthew 24, verse 7, I think it's a slide. It says this, Jesus states, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jump down to verse 21. For there will be a great tribulation, intensification of tribulation, such as not been uh, from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For if the for, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Verse 24, for false teachers, false Christs and prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. There is going to be such civil and political unrest married to intense religious unrest, religious deception, such that if it could cause the elect, the saved, to be taken away, they would. Folks, the years are coming of the intensification of these things. Um, now, Jesus instructs his, in, his disciples on how to navigate these times, right? There's going to be birth pains. Do birth pains, contractions, do they grow further apart or more close? Closer together, do they? All right, and more intense, right? That, that's how Jesus understands the end times. Things are going to get intense and exponentially so. And so what Jesus then goes on to say is to teach his disciples on how to navigate these particular times. So he gives four parables, right? The first is the lesson of the fig tree in chapter 24, verse 32. It's all about having discernment to see the signs of the times, so to speak. Second uh, is in chapter 24, verse uh, 43. It's a parable of the master of the house. It's a call to stay awake and protect what the enemy will come and attempt to steal away. The fourth parable is the parable of the talents. It's about how the kingdom will be advanced in these final days. So you see, it's all about spiritual discernment. It's all about spiritual authority or protection. And it's about kingdom advancement. But the third parable that we just read, the parable of the ten virgins, it's all about what renders discernment to navigate these times. It's all about what renders the anointing and the authority for protecting the house. It's all about what renders the power for kingdom advancement. In other words, I'm saying that if you don't get this parable, the parable of the ten virgins, you won't get the others. This truth is the primary truth. This is what is central. So let's briefly consider it. Jesus says, verse 1, The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. This is a typical wedding in their day. There would be a 
a bridal party, and that's the ten virgins standing there. They're seeking and looking for the groom to come so that they might uh, proceed with him, lead him into the wedding feast. And so that, that was typical uh, in this day. Now, of course, marriage and weddings are a familiar metaphor in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, speaking of Christ. Christ is the groom. Even Jesus will say that of himself in the Gospels. I am the bridegroom. And the bride, of course, is God's people. And so that's the whole of Scripture that the Father has sent his Son to take up a wife, a people for himself, not for the purposes of some sensual pleasure, but nonetheless to give her pleasures in himself that are exponentially incomparable to anything we can know in this world. Oh, how he wants to complete our joy. He is the reward. He is the fullness of the bride's pleasure. He is the absolute satisfaction of her joy. But for our text now, it's important to see that the church symbolically acts as both the bridal party and the bride. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul will say this. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband. See what he's saying? to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying, I'm acting as the bridal party. I'm, I'm bringing Jesus to you. Right? So in some sense, the church is both the bride and the bridal party. In this particular uh, parable, the focus is on the bridal party. And in verse 2, uh, it, Jesus makes clear that there are five foolish bridesmaids and five wise ones. And so what's the distinction between the foolish ones and the wise ones? Well, verse 3, the foolish ones took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. The difference between the foolish and the wise, listen very carefully, is not about form. But about substance. It's not about form, it's about substance. Both the wise and the foolish uh, bridesmaids had lamps. They had the form of the thing. But the distinction was in the substance, right? They both had vessels, they both stood looking the same, but the distinction came by way of the substance. Lamps, of course, here are representative of ministry. Churches in Revelation are referred to as lamps. Here it represents the individual and his kingdom responsibilities. And the oil, the oil is the metaphor used for the active presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit is the oil. He is the anointing. He is the personal substance of relationship that deepens our heart's affection for Christ, that reveals Christ in greater measure to us, who moves on our hearts with a greater zeal for holiness and righteousness for Christ's likeness. I want to be like the groom. I want to reflect his perfections. That's the oil. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. 
You see, the Holy Spirit is the substance. It is the oil, which is the basis. Then for how the groom responds at the end in verse 12, he says, to those who had no oil, I never knew you. I didn't, know, I didn't have any relational connection. You had form, you didn't have substance. You had the externals all right. You could talk the talk, you could walk the walk, but you didn't have me. You had the lamps, but you didn't have the oil. You didn't have intimacy with me. You didn't have connection with me. You didn't have that conscious communion with me. You didn't have that experiential relationship with me. In this setting, for those foolish bridesmaids, there was no relational currency, no intimacy, no substance. There is danger, folks. There is danger in having form but lacking the substance of confessing truth but not knowing him who is truth, of having word but not knowing spirit. It's almost like the older son in the prodigal son story. The prodigal son runs, he's crazy, he does his own thing, right? Wastes the inheritance of the father and he comes back and oh, the relationship with the father. It's now a realization that he loves the father. He loved the father who's merciful to him, who brings him back in and says, you're my son. But then the older son is standing outside. Just not happy with what's taking place. And the older son, who did all the right things, still did not have intimate connection of relationship with the father, so that he would stand outside. Father, I don't trust you, man. I just want your, you gave him the, why don't you give me the inheritance? I want your stuff, I want your forms, I want your blessing, I don't want you. The church is filled with people, well, can I say this? who want the form, but they don't want the substance. Oil sticky. Ever get oil on you? It's like, oh man, it's like it just ain't going away, right? That's how the religious oftentimes view it. They don't see it as the blessing, the salve, the balm that's on them. They see it as just this sticky thing. I just got to get it off. I don't like it. Folks, that's what's happening here, that's the distinction that Jesus is making, that there are wise bridesmaids and there are foolish ones. The, the wise ones make a priority to have the oil. They're dripping with oil. They're dripping with, with, with affection for the bridegroom who's coming. They have relational currency. It is wonderful. Their joy is known. It's seen. It's radiant. But when that oil burns, they are bright. Right. Now when the groom arrives in verse 7, the foolish bridesmaids have no more oil. And so, verse 8, the foolish say to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us, for you, and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Two things, and then we'll conclude. You can't share another's oil. Your relational currency with the Lord can't be shared with someone else. 
you can't just give away the depth of relationship that you have worked hard to gain with the Lord. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. You can't just make somebody relationally deep with the Lord by handing it over to them. That's something that is personal to you. You've gone through the fire. You've gone through the flood. You've come to know who he is. You've come to know the wonder of the bridegroom. And that's nothing that you can just say, hey, have it. For any of you who parent children, isn't that the case? Oh, that you would know him. Oh, that you would know him. Oh, that you would know him. And they just keep, you know, on their video games or doing what they want to do. You can't just translate it over. You can't just take, and there's going to come a day when we will feel these tensions happening within the body of Christ. People panicking in these end times, saying, I need whatever you got. I, I need that quick, 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 quick. Give it to me. And the wise are going to say, this is nothing I can give away to you. You've had all your life. You've had this journey with the Lord. What, what, what? Where's the substance? What you have with the Lord can't be given away. But what, what you have with the Lord must come at a cost. What do the wise say to the foolish? You've got to go buy it. You've you got to put the work in. You gotta lay down, now we know, relationship with the Lord, who's purchased that debt? Jesus. But don't you miss the point? It is every relationship is work. We trust in Jesus that he has made us completely fit for relationship with God, but it costs us something. We gotta die to ourselves. We gotta die to our flesh. We gotta die to our own preferences so that we could pursue him, right? It comes at a I have to clear my schedule. I have to do what I don't want to do. I have to do not just what I don't want to do, but I know it's going to create more pain, more hurt for me to not do the comforts and ease of falling asleep in the bosom of Babylon versus saying, no, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. I'm going to place myself on the altar of sacrifice. It comes at a cost. And here's the heavy preaching. I, I, here's my concern. We are not a perfect people. I'm not a perfect pastor. You show up to Sundays. These are not perfect Sundays. Whatever that would be, I don't know. It's not perfect, but our hearts pastorally are very concerned for a church. And I don't, it's like, I don't know everybody's heart. But the fruit of hearts are realized. And in the things that we're given to. So when the prayer rooms, I'm just going to go there. When the prayer rooms are empty. And when we can't sustain midweek gatherings. Because, well, it's the pastors and whoever's teaching. Something's wrong. And I don't want you to hear that and say, well, I better do things. <laughs> That's what the religious will do. They'll burn themselves out because they're striving to fit a form not to develop the oil. So they're not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. They just feel the burden and the guilt of not fitting the form. I'm not calling you to fit a form. I'm calling you to hunger 
and thirst after the Lord. That's what he wants from you. Child, come into the prayer room, get on your knees and come after me. When the doors are open and we're hovering over his word, come, child, come and feed yourself on bread. When it comes to the spiritual gifts, we need one another. The spiritual gifts flow from the oil. <laughs> right? When we all come and there's very little of the manifest presence of God shining through us. Here's, here's what I know pastorally. Well, we haven't been given to the oil. We've been given to something. But the oil is lacking. The substance is lacking. The hunger is lacking. Tasting and seeing that he's, that he's good. Uh, can I say this? Like, I'm saying no to the Lord, by the way, on the inside. When Father's Day comes and we're more interested in warming up our grills than being before the Father of Lights. I don't know what you did on Father's Day, so like, maybe it doesn't connect at all. It's almost like pastorally I want to remain in ignorance. Because as Ecclesiastes says, with much knowledge comes much vexation. Someone's like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know how bad it might be. I just want you to taste and to see that he's good. It's the oil. I don't care about the form. I don't, whether you have a lamp or not, lamps don't shine by themselves. There must be oil. When we think about discipleship in our church, I evaluate that too. Discipleship comes from oil. You want to get out there and share the gospel with people. Why? Because you know just how good he is and how lost people must be. i got to share him with others. I don't care if it comes... Uh, you know, at, at my cost, that they might know, taste, and see that he is good, or they might reject me, but at least I tried. I'm filled with love. I'm filled. It's the love of Christ that compels us, Paul said, when it comes to his ministry. So have you discipled anyone? Well, I got my kids. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Great. Keep doing that. But is your heart not moved beyond to your co-workers? your neighbors. It's the oil. It's the oil that makes the difference. So, I have to conclude. When it comes, again, coming back around to some of these, when it comes to the heavy preaching, I don't want to be heavy to be heavy. There's no value in that. I don't want to be frustrated to be frustrated. There's no value in, in that. But folks, there is a reality um, that in which there is an urgency on our hearts. we got to be prepared for the warfare that's currently going on and for the intensified warfare that inevitably will come.
So with that, I think we need a transition. Um, again, I would say, well, maybe I haven't said it yet, so I'll say it for the first time. If these are concerns for you, or like, oh man, I, I see the pastors and maybe we're, we're not perfect, so maybe we're like <laughs> lopsided. Uh, we're, we're open to correction and instruction and help. Um, but we want to lay our hearts before you and say, hey, this is where we're going. Uh, this is what we're doing. And, um, and, and create conversation from there. But I do think that this is the constant conversation that we've had over the 10 years. We seem to kind of come to these points and places again and again and again. And I'm okay doing that. Um, as long as, even as some of the concern has been, well, are we moving forward? I don't know. Or we've gone through some tough times. Folks have left and COVID and all this kind of stuff. And there, there is a need to kind of bring everything back together again. Um, so we're in process, let's say that. Uh, but I also don't want to say that undoing the burden that we've placed before you. Um, so let me pray. Uh, if you're online, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to shut that down in just a moment and transition to a few other items. You good? All right. So let's pray, then we'll transition. God, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for a mercy that is unending, a faithfulness that is unending. And so, Lord, we, I pray that you'd bless just kind of like the handful of conversations that we've had about the concerns of your people. Pray you'd bless even the burdens that pastorally we carry. But I pray that you would, by your spirit, according to Ephesians 4, that we would maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Um, Lord, that, that our burden would be rightly communicated and that um, healthy shepherding would, would bring your people forward into the things that you have destined for them. So I just pray that you would bless that process. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.